Uh, thanks. But every girl is like, I feel like every girl has that dream where they're like, I could do porn, and now I'm like, I don't think I can. I don't think I can master that one. Um, I'll do one more, and I'll let other people feel like this. Um, <laughs> I, um, I, uh, I, do, I like my name Molly, but every time I introduce myself to people, they're always like, oh, I never met a Molly, but I know a lot of dogs named Molly. <laughs> And I feel like my parents kind of gave up all naming me. And they just, I'm the last one. They just like went through dog books. Spot, puppy, Spike, Molly. Boom, we nailed it. Um, <laughs> or I get the drug reference, Molly. That's kind of annoying. People are like, Molly, Because <laughs> they can't put sentences together. It's like, <laughs> like, I thought about it, though. I think my parents have a drug problem. I just never noticed. Because my sister's name is Mary Jane. That's her real name. Yeah. yeah. And my brother's name is Crack. Um, <laughs> I'm Molly Sherry. You guys have a great night. Molly Sherry! Yeah! Yeah, everybody was at Dolores Park today in the weird interim, interim rain, and they were like, Molly, Molly, Molly. There's apparently an Amber Alert around for someone named Molly in Dolores Park. I don't know how that works. Yay, Molly Sherry! Yay! Your next comedian, what an amazing human. You guys are in for motherfucking trait. He, he sounds like he's from the South and he hails from there, but he is Portland, Oregon all day long. His hair and beautiful beard just say, I am so white. Put your hands together for a very, very funny man, Hunter Donaldson. It's okay, he's from Portland. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> I have to start over now. <laughs> Lincoln Park. Lincoln Park. I'm gonna start over. Lincoln Park is a band named after a park, Lincoln Park, which was named after the president. So then why is Lincoln Park the band spelled wrong? <laughs> well, Lincoln Park the park already owned LincolnPark.com. Corn. <laughs> corn is a band named after the vegetable corn. But corn the vegetable already owned corn.com. Hooba <laughs> stank. Hoobastank is a band named after a fart, probably. 
somebody farted. Their friend was like, hey, who butt stank? <laughs> but the fart already owned who butt stank.com. <laughs> you guys hear about Olive Garden <laughs> they uh, they recently changed their slogan it used to be when you're here your family now it's when you're not here you aren't family <laughs> do you guys hear about Nike they uh, recently changed their slogan it used to be, just do it. Now it's, hey! <laughs> Knock it off! <laughs> Did you guys hear about Cabela's? I only have 50 more of these. <laughs> Real talk though, my favorite slogan of all time uh, is from a fast food chain based in the South called Rallies. Does anybody know what Rallies is? That's the most love they've ever gotten. Um, <laughs> Rallies has a fantastic fast food slogan. The slogan is, you gotta eat. <laughs> so they got you up against a fucking wall with that one. <laughs> fucking nailed you. You can follow me on uh, Twitter and Facebook. I'm on Ham Radio. You can follow me on GoDaddy. I'm on LinkedIn. You can follow me after this to the bus. <laughs> you can follow me onto the bus. You can follow me to the place that I'm staying. You can look over my shoulder while I get on my Twitter on my computer, so you can seize it like I seize it. I'm gonna do some crowd work. People are always telling me to do crowd work. If you don't know what crowd work is, it's just like the stand-up idea of talking to people and making the funnies that way. Um, I don't know how to do crowd work, though. I'm not very good at it. I'm kind of just learning to do it. How about you? How about I crowd work you? <laughs> All right, I'm gonna. Here we go. I don't know. No, you don't. I'm pretty sure that's how it works. So I'm new to crowd work. Let me just ask you something. What do you think would be like a good crowd work thing to do? What do you think? <laughs> I just, what? I just, I don't know. I just feel like you're the crowd, so. You should do the work. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I know how to do crowd work. Everyone knows how to do crowd work. Uh, you just you just be mean to people, right? Um, that's it. That's all it is. That's the secret. Uh, and I'm actually a really nice guy. I don't really uh, want to be mean to anybody, but that's what they said do. So, um, what's your name, fucking <laughs> fucking idiot? <laughs> What's your name? And I hope that chair has a seatbelt, because 
about to get fucked. <laughs> Joe. What do you do for a living, Joe? Uh, well, you should quit that job and get a better one. He's <laughs> fucked. He's <laughs> fucked. Where's you? What's your name? Dirt. <laughs> what's, I'm sorry. What's your name? I'm sorry. I'm very nervous. Jeremy, what do you do for a living? Well, you should do that job in my asshole. That's where you should do that. <laughs> Jeremy got a new job. He makes jewelry in my ass now. And I got to tell you, it's a nasty ass. It's going to need a lot of jewelry in there to make it look nice. <laughs> this is actually kind of a weird set for me because I'm, I'm quitting. I just decided I quit. <laughs> I'm getting out of stand-up, it's stupid, and I hate it. Because what it is, is it? Just people talking, and that's not very cool. It's not like a cool trick or something. So I'm going to get out of stand-up, and I'm going to get into improv, because that's the real stuff. And I feel like my whiteness will be worth more there, I think. <laughs> Just the, that's the vibe I get. Um, so I'm going to get into improv, yeah, and going to try some right now. I need a suggestion from the audience, one word suggestion of a word that means like a sexy emotion and it rhymes with corny. Any word, anything, whatever you got. Whatever you got. I heard horny. I said horny. That's what I heard. Somebody said horny. Let's see. Let's see if I can come up with a kind of on the spot. Um, I got something. Here we go. <clears throat> Ring, ring, ring. Sorry, I messed it up. Um, ring, ring, ring. <laughs> Excuse me, boss. I'm not going to be able to come into work today. I got too horny. <laughs> Just kidding. I'll be in at noon. Love you. <laughs> I just made that up right now. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Pam. Thanks, everybody. Mutiny. Bye-bye. Hunter Donaldson, yay! We have one last comedian on the show, and he is an amazing human being. You guys are going to love him so much. He's originally from Pennsylvania. I met him four years ago at another comedy festival called the Hilarious Comedy Festival, and he is so hilarious, and we have smoked so much pot now as friends. You guys are going to love him. Put your hands together for Andy Picaro! Was it four years ago? Seriously? Is that how long it was? Wow, I've done nothing in four years. <laughs> I am still putting up money to go to festivals to just mostly smoke like I'm at a fish concert for three days. That's what I've been doing for four years. Oh, that, sorry, Pam. That just hit me a little hard before I got on stage. <laughs> Pam just gave my fucking career a reality check. It's like, uh, start calling it a hobby, bitch. That's <laughs> fucking... <laughs> no, I love coming here. I love this city. Um, sometimes it's 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 a little bit too liberal for me, even though I am liberal. Um, you know, shouldn't shit on the sidewalks. 
Can we all agree? Yeah. Right? Can we all agree? Shouldn't shit on the sidewalks. There's better places to shit. I'm just saying. All right. Like you're, the city is beautiful. It's it's so scenic, but you got to look down. You know what I mean? You got to look down when you're here. No, I love it here. I love how there's barely any fat people. Uh, Cause you just couldn't. I love how I, at, the, the, at the hotel the concierge was like, uh, like telling me what's walkable, and he should have just said fucking nothing. That's what he should have said. <laughs> it's just hills, and then it's rains and it's wet. It was just dangerous all day for me walking around here. I like that kid's gonna go tumbling down at any seconds. I like those ones where they just gave up with the sidewalk. They just made it steps. They're like, look, we're gonna. <laughs> We're going to lose uh, like uh, several people a year if we don't fucking just make these steps. There's going to be fat Midwesterners just rolling down this shit. Should all be steps. Should all be steps. But no, I'm staying in the uh, in the Union Square area, which is, uh, it's that's cool. I, I like it over there. I like the, there's a Macy's. It's nice. <laughs> oh, man. No, I, um... I like being in towns where, you know, there's like a political, you know, feel to it and stuff like that. Cause I'm, I'm dumb and I like to learn. Like I don't ever, you know, claim to like know uh, anything really. And, uh, I hate like, you know, nowadays, uh, every once in a while as a white guy, you get called racist and uh, you know, every once in a while it's like, Oh yeah, thank you for the heads up. That, you're right. That was fucked up. Thanks. I didn't know. You know what I mean? Like every once in a while, it's a good point, but I got called racist the other day and it wasn't my fault. It really wasn't. I admitted I'd never dated a black girl to my one friend. <laughs> And would you believe he called me racist right away? He's like, that's racist. I'm like, oh, really? You think it's me that doesn't want to do that? (laughs) Really? (laughs) You think I just been fucking knocking black girls' phone numbers out of their hand? Get out of here. Are you serious? (laughs) Yeah. I like him a lot. They don't like me at all. That's why I've never dated a black girl. That's been, that's been the stopping point. It's never been my choice. I'm just saying, what black girl do you know that walks into a bar and go, hey, who's that fat guy with no confidence? <laughs> Hold my drink. <laughs> I don't like to generalize anybody, but I know from life experience, I am not their type. <laughs> that's just not... It's not going to work out. They're very polite when they let you down, though. They say sweetie and honey a lot, you know. Whereas white girls just kind of walk away angry. <laughs> that is. Oh, man. No. I'm trying to, to learn more about things. Uh, I, I have been trying to, to work out more because, like, being in L.A., like, I've been living in L.A. for a year, uh, which is still, like, a weird adjustment to make, and everybody's in shape. Even the fat guys, their T-shirts fit. You know what I mean? It's, like, really annoying. Everybody looks good. And, I, and I've noticed, like, on Facebook, it's shallow to notice on Facebook all the new friends I've made are, like, in shape. And I spend way too much time on Facebook. And I started thinking about my Facebook profile picture. And it's just my hair looking all fucking stupid. And I started thinking about the fact that all of my dead friends, their Facebook is like their tombstone. Have we, have we realized that yet as a society? Like, we're not going to walk to fields anymore. The walk into fields is over. We're the last generation that's going to walk into a field and be like, here's a daffodil, I miss you. That's it. We're, we're, we're the last people. <laughs> All right? From here on out, it is a pixelated rose. And then you just a, a funny memory. And that's it on a wall. That's, that's where we are now. That's, we, that's where we are as society. So if you think it's cute to have your profile picture just be you grabbing Mickey's dick, 
Odds are, that's how your grandkids will remember you. I'm just saying, like, that's the way it's going. So think, uh, right now, think about your Facebook picture and, you know, make some better decisions. Uh, I'm trying to, uh, to stop taking Xanax right now, which, um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's so, it's like, it's way better to probably work through your problems, but if there's a pill that makes you not care about it, then who gives a fuck? Like every other drug, it like makes you feel good. Xanax just makes you go, I don't care. <laughs> you know, that's what. Like, like, like other drugs will take you to a different place, and like you're just totally having different thoughts. And Xanax goes, I didn't really like that guy anyway. Fuck him. You know what I mean? That's the way. It's an amazing drug. It's a fucking cure all. I love it, but I, I just lean on it too much for anxiety. Like I have to call a Xanax to talk to my. I call a Xanax. I have to. <laughs> I have to take a Xanax to call my mom sometimes, especially because her dog has been sick. And I'm, I've been upset to get like the new news and stuff. Because her dog had a tumor in, in the stomach. She has a Jack Russell. And for most people, it just means you have a lumpy ass dog. But for my mom, it meant, you know, okay, let's have a bunch of surgeries. And the dog's okay, long story short. But I was so nervous she was going to give me bad news. I'd have to take Xanax, wait a half hour, and call her. <laughs> Is there a more privileged thing that's ever happened? <laughs> In the entire world, then I know I don't look totally white, but I am boring white guy. If I shave, you would I look like a boring white girl to be honest with you. But anyway, uh, yeah. Then then a, then a white guy calling his mom, just be like, being nervous to make sure that Jack Russell's okay. There's like real like that. It shows you have a problem. I want to deal with problems. I want to be able to call like with my own like strength to talk about a Jack Russell's health. I don't need to fucking have a fucking pill. Like, think about how stressful human life used to be. Like, the, the Wild West was a fucking thing not that long ago. A few hundred years ago. It was a real fucking thing. Was it a few hundred? I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> Lincoln-ish time. I don't know. In, a, or in there somewhere. <laughs> but it wasn't that long ago. I don't know. I'm, I, don't, I don't... I've never really read the books. But anyway... It wasn't that long ago where life was really stressful as far as human history goes. It wasn't that long ago. It was pretty recent where people like literally if your neighbor wanted your house and your wife, he could just kill you. Take your house and your wife. And that was just the way it went. That was society. People would have duels. People would get in arguments and they go, all right, tomorrow one of us is going to die. <laughs> that was the way the society was like not that long ago in human history. And now I have to take a pill to call my mom. <laughs> Like, I'm pretty sure in the Wild West, there was nobody walking around going, oh, man, does anybody have a Klonopin? I got a duel tomorrow. I just cannot take, I cannot take my mind off this duel. It is driving me nuts. I got to get some sleep. <laughs> no, they drank it away like normal humans. I had to write whatever I wanted to do on my hand because I can't. Because I just treat this like, seriously. Like, I just smoke as much as I can. And like, oh, it's your turn. <laughs> <laughs> I'll end on this. I, uh, I, I know that uh, this might be a not popular thing to say in San Francisco, but I do believe sexuality is a spectrum, for sure. I do believe that. <laughs> See that? Uh, that misdirection there? Um, no, but I do, totally, I do totally believe that 100%. And the reason I believe that, I didn't believe it for a while, because like, I was like your average, like, man, I'm fucking, dicks are gross. You know what I mean? Like, I was one of those guys. I still think they're kind of gross. But here's my point. 
I'm not gay, but if I'm watching a porn and it's an ugly dick, <laughs> fuck that porn. You know what I mean? That's gross. I don't know. I don't know. Right? And if I'm watching a porn and the dick is pretty good, I'm like, you know what? That's a nice dick. You know what I mean? I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't make it better sexually, but it makes it better visually in some way. Like, I like... I'm just saying, if sexuality wasn't a spectrum, there would just be gay and straight, and that's it. And every dick would look exactly the same. There's no way I'd have a preference in dicks. But the fact that I watch a porn every once in a while and go, that's a pretty good dick. It shows you that we're all on a spectrum. And when I don't get the laugh I want ending on that joke, it just kind of feels like I admitted something to you guys, and that's it. But thank you guys so much for listening. I'm Andy Picaro. Thank you, Pam, for having us. Andy Picaro, everyone. Yay! Hooray! That's been Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse for the night. Clap it up for all the amazing comedians you saw. Yeah! We are going to take a 10-minute break, and then we, we will be back with rad, real-ass dudes. That's our next show at 10 o'clock. So uh, enjoy our everybody clap it up for David Zunzu Kersher, Run the Ones Into, and Mike Spiegelman. Let's watch full-length movie on YouTube with Michael Spiegelman. He's our door guy. You can also listen to him every Sunday from 2 to 4. We'll be right back in 10 minutes with the next show. Yay! No, no, no. Apply now for the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2019. Applications open until November 30th for 25 shows in five days. 40 comics chosen March 1st through 5th, 2019 for the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. It's our fourth annual and we hope you apply from whatever part of the nation or international comedy scene you come from. Apply now through November 30th. Go to our website, www.mutinyradio.fm for more details. Aloha, mutineers. Stolowitz here. People ask me, Dave, why do you spend so much time listening to mutinyradio.fm? Well, the answer is simple to me. It's the love I find here. We've got so many great programs here. There's something for everybody, surely. Well, maybe not the Hitler crew, but you know everyone else. Let me tell you about some of my favorite shows here at Mutiny you may not have heard about. Labor and Love with Bill Morgan is every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 noon. Bill is passionate about labor, jazz, and solidarity, and he tells you how it is. No BS. If somebody gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. I always learn a lot from Labor and Love. It's educational and inspirational. The Common Thread Collective is every Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. with legendary octogenarian hate ashbury activist Diamond Dave. With help from his friends, Dave talks news, wisdom, progressive activism, and spirituality. There's also open mic time for music, poetry, and stories. Comics got to hold off till happy hour, though. Oh, and check out Flat Black Plastic with Scott Walker. Saturdays from noon to 2. The title says it all. Classic vinyl albums with no apologies. 
great stuff. You can listen in live to these fine programs on mutinyradio.fm or download the podcast at your convenience on Apple iTunes. What a deal. Authentic, real San Francisco love. That's what keeps our ship afloat. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl! Are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer ya. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> For all your space chicken sci-fi comedy non-political humor needs, go to timstesseract.com. Read fiction about the future of San Francisco after the water wars of 2121 in Jane 6. Ask a Jedi for important life hacks. Eat flesh with the bear exoskeleton Contessa. And check your horror horoscope on Horoscopia. Updated every three parsecs. Timstesseract.com Timstesseract.com at mutinyradio.fm it's a great place to listen to crazy things
so many comedy shows at this station. We're actually under the free comedy section. Spiegelman and I am Carl not Spiegelman join us every Sunday 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on mutinyradio.fm for the let's watch a full-length movie on YouTube we watch the best movies that uh, aren't they good well they're chosen by uh, here's you. his theme song again bye okay bye watch friends out at Mutiny Radio. Jester Gashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as Mufi's over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Bamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Pamtastics deep in the mission where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere $10. And $10, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off for is <laughs> in duty this. And if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, don't worry, don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer cottage on the mountain ridge with the kayaks. <laughs> Just go to podcast.pcrcollective.org or mutinyradio.fm podcasts and look for Comedy Clubhouse with a K. You can download it for free. But we'd love to see you every Friday, 8 to 10, down here at Mutiny Radio. Laugh off your tushy and save your life. Because you know what's better than laughter? Well, it's a cash cock, baby. (laughs) How exciting for you, Mutiny Radio listener. There are six new shows here at MutinyRadio.fm. Monday nights at 10 o'clock, it's time for free phone sex. 415-550-0511. Yes, call in for free phone sex. You will be recorded. It is a podcast, but will that phone sex be free? Absolutely. 10 a.m. Mondays, it's time for Everyday Conversations on Race with Everyday People. With Sima Lieberman, Everyday People, talking about race every week. Different Everyday People, talking about race 
on Tuesdays, 10 o'clock, it's Spiritual Psychology with Renee McKenna. Meditate. It'll heal ya. Then, at noon, stick around. Sergio Novoa brings you my limited view. Talking about all things from his perspective. Then, on Thursdays, from 8 to 10, it's time for Beyond Your Comprehension with Clem. Exciting new shows here at Mutiny Radio. Also, the IC Podcast. That's the Imprint City Podcast. Coming soon. MutinyRadio.fm. New shows. You can have one, too. Contact director at MutinyRadio.fm to find out more details. Check us out at MutinyRadio.fm. Listening to Mutiny Radio. Hey, everybody. Uh, you're listening to Mutiny Radio. Coming up next is Women's Magazine with Global Val, followed by the Common Thread Collective. So stay tuned to Mutiny Radio. You can find us at mutinyradio.fm. And if you'd like to come by for the Common Thread Collective, we are located at the corner of 21st and Florida in the Mission District. We're on Ohlone land. Thanks so much for listening to uh, the Weekly Review. And uh, coming up next again, as I mentioned, will be the the, uh, Women's Magazine with Global Val. Stay tuned. Don't you know Talking about a revolution Sounds Don't you know Talking about a revolution It sounds like a whisper While they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around waiting for a promotion Don't you know Talking about a revolution It sounds
for me
Welcome to Women's Magazine. This is Global Val here. The date is Friday, November 9th, 2018, and live here at MutinyRadio.fm here in the Mission District at the corner of 21st and Florida Streets. I hope you're enjoying your Friday afternoon, but definitely stay safe out there. Uh, there's a lot of smoke in the air. No, it's not because it's it's san francisco you know stoners no 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 uh there's a ton of smoke in the air coming from the camp fire um located up in paradise california uh near chico california so if you were to drive from san francisco um up to chico it'd take you about a good four hours maybe five hours um depending um so although it's quite a distance uh from where we are um the city has been inundated with smoky air for the, at least the past 24 hours or more um so i know i've got my tie-dye bandana as i walk down the streets and um a lot of other people are, are, are donning their masks as well. Uh, unfortunately, the state of California and the Californians have, have, have been getting used to um, some of this, this terrible air quality um, brought about by wildfires throughout the state, especially over the past couple of years. And um, it's happening again. So although it does create that kind of beautiful uh, L.A. smog kind of glow in the sky and the sun, you know, looks like dune, you know, it's like red. Um, so it's, it's a rather it creates a rather striking um, light uh, profile here. Um, it's definitely uh, smoky. It smells like smoke. Um, and so uh, it's the it's really bad air quality right now in the Bay Area. Um, so be safe out there. Take precautions, um, especially if you or someone you know uh, suffers from asthma or other uh, breathing problems. Um, this could really exacerbate those symptoms. So um, keep an eye out for each other. Uh, stay hydrated. Uh, you know, wear wear uh, something over your face and nose if, if you if you have a chance, um, and protect yourselves and, and look out for one another right now. Because uh, although we can see the smoke in the air, it's kind of an invisible thing. So um, you know, if you're getting headaches or other kinds of symptoms, like you know, be aware of the, of the smoke and the air quality right now, um, and uh, try to take care of yourselves. That's my little PSA for the day, um, because this is Mutiny Radio, and we care. So uh, thanks for tuning in to listen today. Um, 
yeah, today's November 9th. So we're looking, you know, very much closer to the end of the year. Uh, I can't believe 2018 has passed so quickly. In some ways, it's a blessing. In other ways, wow, life moves pretty fast. Um, so just to let you know, if you're just tuning in, and I just got in from, I was had a meeting at, at, at my day job. Uh, so it was a little bit of a delay, which is why I'm starting uh, about 20 minutes into this podcast. But um, just so you know, uh, we have a, f- a few dates that we're going to be doing the show here throughout the end of the year. When I say we, I mean myself here for Women's Magazine and also uh, myself and Diamond Dave for Common Thread Collective. Um, 2018, the four remaining shows are as follows. Today, November 9th, and then um November 30th, uh, we're going to be doing a show uh, that Friday afternoon because it's the day before MAP, the Mission Arts and Performance Project. So we want to make sure that we get to do a show before then. Uh, we'll possibly have Jorge Molina, Molina come in and do a blessing. We'll see if Cambia can show up and maybe do a little musical set for us to, to get us all geared up for MAP, which is an amazing free event here in the Mission District where you can cruise around almost all day, but definitely all evening to various locations and venues. And some of times there are cafes and sometimes there's someone's garage or living room or um, an art studio or something um, where these spaces are transformed into uh, art and performance spaces. So Mission Arts and Performance Project. That's going to be on December 1st. So we will be here at Mutiny Radio on the Friday prior to that, which is November 30th. Then in December, uh, we'll be doing two shows uh, in the middle of the month. So Friday, December 14th, and then on Friday, December 21st, which will be the solstice. And we're going to have a great... um, show that day. We hope you'll come in for all of these shows and participate on the Common Thread Collective uh, Community Open Mic. But certainly on the 21st, we're going to have an amazing brass trio led by Aaron Priscorn, and they're going to be playing some of their uh, holiday music on their respective brass instruments. Um, But it would be great to have as many people who want to come and be a part of that show uh, to do so. Just adjusting to my microphone here. I love Mutiny Radio. It's such a roll-your-own kind of place. You know, it, we're, we're strictly online, um, so we're free speech. Uh, we don't have any bosses, so we can pretty much do what we want and say what we want, uh, for better or for worse. And, um, you know, when I, when I knock the microphone cable out, I can just reach down and pick it up. So... <laughs> Yay. Um, so I'm definitely going to be talking about the election that happened on Tuesday, but we're, we're just going to take a, a little a few breaths before we get into that. Um, but I do want to um, direct you to our website, mutinyradio.fm. Go to our podcast archive and check out the weekly review with Roman. Um, he just did a show uh, just before this one. Then again, today is November 9th, 2018, um, where uh, a friend of his called in from the caravan that is slowly making its way up through Mexico from Central America, gathering folks who are planning to come to the U.S. border seeking asylum. Um, but there are uh, people who are down there helping out. Uh, remember, these are men, women, and children, uh, you know, all ages, people from different countries, different regions, different language speakers, um, you know, and who are looking for a safer, better life. And, um, 
And uh, so if you check out the Facebook page for the Weekly Rev. Yeah. Right? Weekly Rev. Yeah. Weekly Rev. My right here. The Weekly, weekly Rev. Oh, sure. Yeah. If you go to facebook.com forward slash Weekly Rev, uh, you'll find uh, the link for today's show. And there was also they're also doing a um, some some crowdfunding to try to help bring supplies to the people. Yes, yeah. There's a PayPal that's included in the description of today's show, and so folks can donate directly to folks who are on the ground. Excellent. Thanks, Val. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Roman, for all the good work you do here at Mutiny Radio. Um, you know, we we here at least I'll speak for for myself and and Roman. We're we're just trying to make the world a better place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we we just want you to know what's going on, um, for better or for worse, uh, so that you know you can kind of reach out to people and commiserate or uh, you know help. <laughs> or get help um you know it's we're working on a real human level here so um i really appreciate that and uh i, I hope i hope you do too hey if you're listening to the show you must because that's kind of it's kind of how we roll uh, around here so i'm going to play a little music for you um from a very cool band uh that plays around the bay area they're called brother spellbinder and um yeah, you can catch them around. Sometimes they actually um, recently had a regular stint. I'm not sure if they're still doing it Wednesday nights at the Revolution Cafe over here on 22nd Street. Um, but a, a really cool little ensemble. So um, here's some music from our whoops, our friend's uh, brother Spellbinder. And uh, actually our, another friend of mine just handed me this CD a week ago. So um, although I've heard their music before, I'm not sure what to expect. Uh, I'm just going to randomly select a track and we're gonna go with it so here we go welcome to women's magazine Zero 
right, some music from Brother Spellbinder. Are you, are you spellbound? I am. Um, really cool, really cool band. Um, go check them out at the Revolution Cafe, I think on Wednesday nights. Uh, I think they're still on that circuit. Um, all right, well, this is an unavoidable topic. The midterm elections. Oh my God. So Global Val's election season coverage, I have to be honest, it started really strong. Last December, actually, um, when the the late um, Ed Lee, our former mayor, um, died unexpectedly uh, in December of 2017. And it, 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 it struck, struck, ignited the fire of a, of a, short-lived uh, mayoral race, which probably saw more mayoral forums in that short little six-month period um, than a normal um, every four-year election, um, mayoral election would uh, would have. Um, it was a real whirlwind. I interviewed at least three of the candidates for mayor, um, a couple that uh, were supposed to come in and, and never did. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And uh, we had a, a forum here for people who were running against Nancy Pelosi for U.S. Congress. We had a right here at Mutiny Radio. I, I moderated that forum uh, between, I believe, four candidates. Um, and uh, we talked to people who were pushing for or strongly opposed to various ballot measures. All, all of this like in the first six months really of uh, 2018. And you can find links to all of those on interviews on globalval.blogspot.com. Globalval.blogspot.com has links to all those. And so it's kind of funny. I have to, I really have to admit this um, because as a volunteer radio DJ, um, it was about, I was, you know, it was about a week before the June uh, primary election here. And, um, when I realized, wow, this election season goes till November. <laughs> so I admittedly felt a little bit burnt out um, but, but after the June election. So uh, we actually took some time this summer to kind of uh, step back a little bit and, um, you know, do our shows every other week as opposed to every single week. And um, so my, my latter part of 20, 2018 election season coverage was a, a little less intense than the first half. Um, that being said, uh, certainly uh, there's been a lot to talk about this year. Um, I went to the She the People conference. Um, it was a big summit here in San Francisco. And um, it was women from around the country, 36 states, um, primarily women of color, which was the focus of uh, building a community of support um, outside of, um, although, you know, still somewhat aligned with uh, the current political party systems, um, but, uh, you know, trying to push for, for, for more women to be elected into all levels of government. Um, and it wasn't until that summit, She the People, um, that I really understood the scale of uh, the movements here across the country. Um, the pushes, the push for change uh, in representative government, uh, who was going to be running and winning primaries and then ultimately winning seats 
uh, around the country. Um, so although there were, of course, a few, you know, disappointments, as there always are uh, in this recent election that took place just three short days ago, um, we certainly saw a big wave of change. I'm not going to call it a blue wave, um, you know, even though uh, a lot of people ran under the Democratic banner, um, but certainly a, a large wave of change um, with a lot of firsts. In fact, a record 117 women won office on Tuesday. Um, pretty amazing stuff. Um, let's see. Uh, I'm going to just by you know some of the numbers here uh, I've got a couple articles here that I'm referencing one's from NPR one's from the New York Times so um, mostly objective number stuff uh, as opposed to substantive uh, bias but um, in terms of numbers hundred at least 117 women were elected on Tuesday 100 Democrats and 17 Republicans and that was as of Wednesday you know there's still some counting to be done of them 42 are women of color at least three of them are eligible LGBT. Um, with some ballots still being count counted, women have so far claimed 96 of the House's 435 seats, um, which is expected to rise to 100. Um, that's a, a, an increase from the current 84 seats that women occupy in the House of Representatives. So uh, still, you know, nowhere close to parity, but uh, growing. Um, at least 12 women won Senate seats, um, which will bring the total in that chamber to at least 22. Um, so th again, nowhere near halfway, but uh, <laughs> uh, some victories across nonetheless um, for women. And there's certainly, you know, from both parties, actually. Uh, women won nine governorships. Um, six women currently serve. So that's bringing that number way up. Um, basically, overall, at least 10 more congressional seats will be occupied by women than before. Um, let's see. Uh, 250 women were on the ballot. Um, so the fact that 117 women won is a pretty amazing figure. Um, I just want to talk about some of the people who won who are really interesting that we're going to be uh, looking at and 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 becoming familiar with over the years to come um the first muslim women uh there was the democrat uh rashida talib who's from missions against 13th district i met her at she the people she came to san francisco um she had you know tears in her eyes as she spoke about the water crisis of flint michigan um these are people who are going door to door and real grassroots um efforts uh to become elected so um She's going to be represent in the House of Representatives. She'll be representing Michigan's 13th district. Um, and then from Minnesota, another Muslim woman, Ilan Omar, uh, is representing that state's 5th district. So they both became the first Muslim women elected to Congress. Um, and also, uh, Ilhan Omar is also a refugee. So she'll be the first refugee in Congress. Um, and then uh, Rashida Tlaib will be the first Palestinian-American woman to serve in Congress. So I think that's going to be rather interesting as well. Um, she, she joked at She the People. She said, you know, of course, my mother thinks I'm going to go free Palestine. <laughs> um, but, you know, what a different voice to have in Congress. Um, 
We also elected the youngest woman ever, 29-year-old Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, she's serving New York's 14th district. Um, and yeah, the, the woman who currently holds... Um, uh, who who previously held that distinction of being the youngest woman was elected at age 30 um, in that also from New York but that was back in 2014 so uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez she's been getting a lot of press of course you're probably familiar with her name what I think is particularly badass about her other than her politics is that she not only won in the 14th district in her primary in June but she also won as a write-in candidate for the 15th district because they loved her so much um, so of course after that primary she had to choose one district which of course she chose the 14th which she was running for um, to represent um, you know, from where she came from in New York. Uh, so she's going to call uh, to Congress. <laughs> she's going to college. No, she's going to Congress. Um, another round of firsts, which I think is particularly moving, um, is the first Native American women. Uh, Democrat Sharice Davids won the House seat from Kansas's third district, unseating a Republican Kevin Yoder. And Democrat Deb Holland from New Mexico won the seat for New Mexico's first district. So both of them, that makes both of them the first Native American women ever elected to Congress. You get where we're going with this? You see, see what's happening here? Um, Ayanna Presley, Democrat from Massachusetts, a city councilwoman from Boston who won, who ran against a 10-term incumbent Democrat and won the, her primary handily won this election and she's becoming the first black woman elected to Congress from Massachusetts uh, to represent that state's seventh district. Um, huge. Um, also, um, Iowa's getting their first women house members ever um, going to Congress. Uh, first Latina Congress members from Texas, uh, Democrat Veronica Escobar in the state's 16th district and Sylvia Garcia in the state's 29th district. First Latinas represented in the, in the state Congress, according to the Texas Tribune. Um, first woman governor of Maine, uh, first woman ever elected governor of Iowa, first woman senator from Tennessee, uh, first woman governor from South Dakota, um, who's a Republican, by the way, but still, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a women's magazine, um, and the first woman senator from Arizona. Pretty amazing stuff. Uh, I, I'm not, I don't usually love, um, and that was some reporting from the, from NPR. I don't usually love, um, the New York times, but there was, uh, the, 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 there was a great line here, um, from Maya Salam who wrote the gender letter. Um, and she said a record 117 women won elections across the United States on Tuesday, flipping seats and taking names. So, uh, if you don't think change is possible, think again. Um, if you don't think change is in progress, don't be mistaken. Uh, there's a lot of passion and a lot of power and a lot of people coming together um, to try to stir the pot in this country and um, 
and uh, well, make it more fair, more equitable, more actually representative of our populace. And so um, I've I've. I've met some of these women. I have uh, talked to some of their senior advisors. Um, I, I interviewed um, Ayanna Presley's senior advisors here on Women's Magazine back on, I'll get the date right in a minute, it's September 21st. So you can check out that uh, podcast uh, where we kind of did a, re a recap of She the People and talked about Ayanna Presley's um, historic run and victory. Um, so yeah it's happening um change change is here change is coming and uh when you see a picture of the next uh, house of representatives when they get sworn in uh in, in january it's going to look a lot different so um Democrats have regained the the uh, majority in the house of representatives um a, a good way to put a check on power uh, remember old checks and balances um a great way to to put some balance at least back into our uh, system of government between the executive the judiciary and the legislative branches of government um so uh, although the, the senate is still uh has a majority of Republicans who obviously have been self-serving and their own um, moneyed interests behind them and playing dirty and getting into bed with uh, sleazeball number 45 um, to get their own agenda across. Well, you know, Senate still has a majority of Republicans, but things are changing. Uh, we definitely are looking at a time of opportunity. So don't go to bed. If you're feeling like you're more woke than you've ever been, uh, you know that you got to stay up um, and, and keep at it. Um, we certainly need to remain vigilant, um, especially as attacks uh, keep coming from the White House against uh, freedom of the press. Um, just remember, if... If people are trying to hide things from you, it's probably because they're doing something that you are not going to like very much. So, um, you know, the writings on the wall, uh, the, the, dir the, the dirty dealings are um, not too far under the surface. So, um, don't despair. Here's a little music for you. A little more Brother Spellbinder. This is Women's Magazine. I'm Global Val. Awesome Friday. You are. He did you a favor. You'll appreciate later. Just another night caper. Never say never. It's gonna get
you're going to get by. You're going to thrive. Sometimes you're going to feel like you're flying. Happy Friday, everybody. This is Global Val here at MutinyRadio.fm. You're listening to Women's Magazine. I do always want to encourage you to tune in and listen to Women's Magazine on KPFA 94.1 FM every Monday afternoon from 1 to 2 p.m. My colleagues over there are always doing fantastic work uh, elevating women's voices. Um, They are the original Women's Magazine. I am but an outpost here in the Mission District on this crazy ship called Mutiny Radio. Anyhow, um... Happy November, uh, and uh, wow, Whew, what a year. All right, I feel like I should read you a poem, and it is, this, this, is, uh, this is not my poem. I did not write this. Um, I might read one of my own later, but um, this comes from She the People, so the She the People Summit that happened in September. Um, it's called An Anthem for Now. And it's honor. It's in honor of she the people, and it's by Elmaz Abinader, and um, she is um, a professor over at Mills College, and she wrote this, and this this kind of came on the flyer from that day. Um, so here we go. It's called an anthem for now. The world inside and beside me are one. Change starts when you listen to the heart. Hear this. Country, you do not need a telescope to find us. Stars are among you. Shift your eyes from the corridors to the sky, from the sky to the home, from the home to the field, from the field to the classroom, hospital, factory floor, and street corners. Hear this. We are the voiceless and we will be heard, not as a song to entertain you, not as a rule to be followed or a call to dinner. We call on you to listen to the voices that stream in from embattled countries and towns with names hard to pronounce and ways you do not see on TV. The world inside and beside me are one. Change starts when you listen to the heart. Country, hear this. The configuration is new again. Answers are not bought or bargained for. This is no backhaul game. Nothing is theoretical. The evidence is us. And we come here open hands to offer solution, inclusion, compassion, and generosity. Don't question it. So country, it's time to welcome the unseen and the unheard who have been doing your labor all along. But don't worry, we clean up good and stand before you and with you. See us, hear us with all our languages, accents, bodies, all our ages and wisdoms. It is time. The world inside and beside me are one. Change starts when you listen to the heart. And that was written by Elmaz Abinader, professor. An anthem for now. She the people, y'all. It's awesome. Suddenly, a bow, a wee 
You've been listening to Women's Magazine here on MutinyRadio.fm. I'm Global Val. Thank you so much for tuning in. Of course, the music that we were listening to here is from Brother Spellbinder. Um, and uh, it's an exciting time to be alive. So I feel like I should read you a little poem as well. Um, because although I myself... Uh, Well, let's see. Do I have time to read this? Hmm. That's kind of a long one. (sighs) How about this? We'll end with with this. Because I know that you're out there and you're dreaming. Uh, I know I'm dreaming. So here we go. Visions awaken. Visions awaken through inspiration. Open your eyes. Seek and find what you wish to be. Call to the far reaches. The echo is destiny. Pump love and passion even into the faintest notion of what could be. A colorful yarn unraveling to unleash your story. A call and response of your dreams and reality. Peace to you all. I'm Global Val. Stay tuned. The Common Thread Collective is coming up next. Um, lots of love. Stay, stay strong. Stay healthy. And remember, just when your aspirations seem outrageous, like running for Congress and winning, who knows? Inspiration is contagious. Peace. Thank you. Stay tuned.
Я могу говорить, давай. Я могу, могу. говорить. with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People, where we bring people together from different cultures and different backgrounds to have comfortable conversations about race and bring race to the people. If you have ever wanted to talk about race but were afraid of saying the wrong thing or afraid of not being heard, then this podcast is for you. And if you want to hear more episodes, please go to www.raceconvo, convo like conversation, raceconvo.com. I am so happy today to have two extremely wonderful guests, Tracy Brown and Howard Ross, who are both colleagues and friends of mine. Tracy Brown and Howard Ross are both longtime thought leaders. They're authors and thought leaders in the field of diversity, in the field of inclusion, and in the field of leadership. So I am going to ask Howard and Tracy both to say a few words about themselves and say a little bit about your demographics since people can't see you. I see you, but they can't see you. So let's start with you, Tracy. Great. Thanks, Emma. So demographics, I'm black. I'm a baby boomer. I'm a business owner. I live in Texas, but I grew up in the Midwest, Missouri, Illinois, Kansas, And from the age of two, I have been engaged in conversations about race. So I consider myself a bridge builder and do a lot of work with organizations all over the United States related to all aspects of diversity and inclusion. And Howard. Yeah. Hi, Sam. Hi, Tracy. I've been for the past 35 years doing consulting in diversity and inclusion and organizational change, as you say, a lot of leadership work as well, particularly focusing on the unconscious bias and how it impacts people's behavior, and more recently on how we create uh, environments of belonging where people can really feel connected and part of either the workplace environment or the community environment that they live in. And my demographics, I'm a six foot five white Jewish guy in my late 60s. So I've been doing this for a long time. Howard, you mentioned belonging. Mm-hmm. Can you say something about belonging? And either one of you, could you, could you say, what, what do you mean by belonging? Well, you know, it's interesting, Simba, because my dear friend and, and mentor, Dr. Jeanetta Cole, has said for years that uh, diversity is being invited to the dance and inclusion is actually being asked to dance. 
uh, what I would add is belonging is, is actually having some of your music playing. In other words, when we're trying to create environments of belonging, what we mean are, are environments where it's not just that people who have been traditionally marginalized or welcomed into the environments that those of us who are in the dominant group have created. It's that they're actually part of creating those environments, that their voice, that their experience, that their culture influences the very envir- environments that they're a part of. And it creates a great, greater sense of home. And that usually means that we have some sense of shared destiny, that what happens to you could happen to me. Some shared of interdependent, some sense of interdependence, that what happens to you is likely to impact what happens to me. Some sense of shared values. And I don't mean that that means we agree on everything, but at least we have some container of values that's similar. And usually in environments like that, we find that we're more able to be ourselves, that we feel less protected, like we need to guard ourselves more. And how about you, Tracy? What do you think when you think about belonging? I like the concept of belonging. You know, the word itself, that we create environments where everyone feels they belong, that they are valued. I like the concept of that. So, yeah, lots of successes. And I think that's why I'm so jazzed about it. So in a one-on-one situation, you know, successes because I'm able to navigate that and not get hooked most of the time. But in organizational settings, two things come to mind. About 20 years ago, I co-created a program called Dallas Dinner Table. And we have, and there are similar programs around the country, if not around the world. But in this particular one, we gather people in groups of eight to 10 all over the metropolitan area on the same night, having conversations in groups that have been assigned to each other that are multi-ethnic, multi-generational It has been fascinating because it's facilitated and guided to have conversations with people and have people come away saying, you know, OMG, I had no idea. Or, wow, I've met three people who are going to be friends who I never would have met because our circles are different, our races are different, our ages are different. So that really comes to mind that it's possible and it's meaningful for people. And of course, the people who sign up to do it are looking to have a conversation. And the other example that jumped to mind immediately was in a corporate setting, and it was specifically a dialogue about race and racism and race relations because they were in that company having some challenges. And this was about eight years ago, seven or eight years ago. And I was able to work with them for a day with a specific group of people who were then going to be champions and facilitating conversations within the organization. And six months later, they had really transformed the environment and people were no longer afraid to talk about race. They were willing to own their own story and experience and realize that their experience was not the same as everyone else's. So there were fewer assumptions being made. And the fear factor, there's a huge fear factor about talking about this subject because people don't want to say the wrong thing. So those are just a couple of examples that came to mind immediately. How about you, Howard? 
Yeah, well, I would say hundreds. I mean, hundreds of conversations that have, I think, led to positive results. You know, this is what we do on a regular basis. And, and I do think that, I think with the, the last point that Tracy made is the most important one, which is that people are afraid of this conversation. And we don't, I remember when Eric Holder said, you know, a number of years ago, he said, Americans are just afraid of talking, we're cowards when it comes to talking about race. And I think that that's true. And I think that, I think that, that there's some responsibility for that on both sides of the conversation, both people who are diversity advocates and also people who are resistant to diversity, put up barriers of our own to really having open and honest conversation. On the part of people who are resistant, of course, there's the notion that if I don't see the impact of race, if it doesn't affect me, then it must not be there or it must be it must be overly you know, generated or must be race baiting or these other kinds of things, because if I see it, it must not exist. And I think we know better than most of us that we just take a moment and a rational moment. We know that if you're in a non-dominant group, you're going to see the effects of that identity more than if you're in a dominant group. As a white man, for example, I don't have to pay a lot of attention to race if I don't want to, other than to keep myself out of trouble. But a person of color can't live in this country without being very aware of race, or most people of color, on an ongoing basis to know where the traps are, where the, where the trap doors are that I might fall through, or the rocks that I might stumble over, or the person who's out to get me. I think from the other side, sometimes as diversity advocates, we come across as blaming and shaming people and beating up on them when they're really, in a lot of cases, truly are ignorant about their behavior and ignorant even about some of their belief systems. And so we put them on the defensive and expect them to change more quickly than is reasonable to expect a human being to change. And as a result, the whole conversation of diversity is perceived as an attack on them and they get defensive and protective. And, and so I think from both sides, we have to have a deeper appreciation of how challenging it is for us to talk about these issues and, and find constructive models like, like some of the ones that Tracy was just talking about, like the community model she was just talking about, you know, constructive models like that to, to help build relationships, which then the conversations can occur in because difficult relationships only occur when people have trust. Yeah, I, you know, I think that you're right. And I think what you're saying is, is really important. I mean, you bring up several, several points. One is that people, sometimes people are afraid. So then the question is, why are they afraid? But the other thing is that when you have that, do people change by shaming and blaming? Mm-hmm. So why are people afraid? I think I'll jump in first this time. I mean, I think that we're afraid because we see the ramifications of how the conversation can go wrong. Um, we see that if we, if we're of color, for example, that the source of the conversation, our reaction to the conversation can then be used to victimize us even more. Oh, you're one of those people. You're one of those race people. Or what was it? When we were growing up, Tracy, they called it uppity, right? But now, <laughs> they have new language now. But, you know, but you're, you know, all of a sudden you get associated with that. And if people, if people have a strong, conversation about that, that could be used to hurt you either in a, either in a social setting or in a business setting. So I think that the, the fear is understandable. And I forget, what was the second part of the question, Simi? You, you asked about the fear. And and then, shame and blame. Does that? Oh, yeah. Shame and blame. Yeah. And, and look, we know that guilt and shame are not constructive motivators of human behavior. I mean, this is a lot of the work that Brene Brown is talking about, of course. What shame and guilt do is they cause us to 
that causes to contract. I mean, anybody who's listening, if you think of somebody in your life who makes you feel guilty, do you want to be around them more or less? I mean, for most of us, it's less. There's a difference between guilt and shame versus responsibility. We want people to take responsibility for their behavior. So when we say don't shame or, or guilt them into something, it's not to say don't hold people accountable. It's just say focus on responsibility. Not so much you're a terrible person because you believe this, but more what are you going to do to move this conversation forward in a positive direction? And that gives people something to do with their energy around it. Now, I'm not talking, of course, about the David Dukes or Richard Spencers of the world. We're never going to reach those folks, and we've got to keep them limited. But I'm talking, I'm talking about the larger percentage of people who don't even realize how much of their decision-making is given by unconscious patterns and bad and the attitudes that they have about people who are different from them. So what do you think, Trace? I don't know that I have anything to add about the blame and shame. I think we all know that even if we had family members who used that on us when we were children or young, that for long-term shifts, real transformation, that's not the way to go. So a phrase that I have used a lot over the last couple of decades in organizations and trying to help people understand they they don't want to always be the enforcer, right? That, oh, if I'm a champion for diversity, then I need to catch everybody who does anything wrong and shine a spotlight on them. And so the question I often will ask is, do you want to be a diversity cop or do you want to be a diversity coach? That's and a that's, great question. You know, wow. that's a, and then I, I will help them understand that there are times when you need to speak directly and enforce a policy. But really, those are the exceptions. Those are the exceptions. It's very few times when someone, as Howard just said, is intentionally you know, creating a hostile or unsafe environment. And so in that case, every time something happens, I have an opportunity to coach you about a better way to look at that or give you more information that might help you navigate that situation or work with that person differently. So that question, uh, well, what's your intention? Is your intention to be a diversity cop or a diversity coach? It often will make people to at least slow down enough to think, how would I do this? What would I say? What system would I set up? if I wanted to coach people into self-responsibility for change and transformation compared to what behavior or what system would I set up if what I really wanted to do was collect, make a collection of everything that anyone could do wrong and highlight that. Yeah, you know, Tracy, in fact, just, I, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, I, I, the way I sometimes say it, even as facilitators, even as people who are leading these conversations, I think we have to distinguish at times between the role yes. of advocate versus the role of change agent. You know, as an advocate, you know, I might march in the Black Lives Matter movement or in the March for Our Lives or in the Women's March. You know, I'm an advocate when I'm doing there, and I have very strong points of view politically, which I post in social media or I write about at different times. But when I'm facilitating a group in a room, I have a different role. It's not my job to be the advocate because if I'm the advocate in the room, I'm taking sides already. I'm inside of the system and it makes it very hard for me to help the system heal itself. 
So my job in the room as a facilitator is to honor all of the conversations in the room and to remove my personal beliefs or not remove it, but put it to the side and be able to hold space so that other people can really have honest conversations. And I think like in any other case, if anybody is doing any kind of a mediation, for example, if you were, if you were at odds with your spouse and you know, you were going into a mediation session and the person who was mediating was your spouse's best friend, you wouldn't feel comfortable that you were safe to have the conversation as you know, you wouldn't likely feel comfortable. So I think that this is one of the challenges that we face is being able to compartmentalize some of our views and, and, and express them at the appropriate time. Wow. You both, what the two of you said is very profound for me and really impacts me because I really like, do you want to be a diversity cop or a diversity coach? Yeah, me too. <laughs> that is so great. And then Howard, I like the way that you talked about the difference because for me, that was a little bit Drove me a little bit, like sometimes a little bit nuts thinking about, okay, I've got my corporate self where I am more, I mean, more neutral in terms of how I talk to people. But then there's that social justice part of me, especially these days where I'm very opinionated, where I really want to see change and I'm working for change. And sometimes for me, it was like, well, who am I? How does this all work? And I really like, I, you just made me feel a lot more comfortable with myself. Oh, good. I gotta say, and, and I, one of my missions in life. That's good. Well, no, <laughs> really, you just, just helped me, like, clarify. All right. <laughs> well, we're, we're seeing a lot of people getting fired these days. At what point should someone be fired? And at what point should they be educated? So could you comment on that? And how do we educate people? Well, you I mean, obviously, we've seen the example this past week of Megyn Kelly and, you know, and, and we know there are lots of other people around. I mean, you know, I mean, I have to say, I guess to preface my comments to say that I am a fierce proponent of free speech. I, you know, part of it is that in my life experience of being a social justice warrior for now, over 50 years, most of the time when free speech is, is uh, suppressed, it's it's people who are looking for change in society who are suppressing it. And so, I mean, who are being suppressed. And so that usually is people from the liberal or progressive side. So just for, for plain self-interest, I try to tell people, if you suppress their free speech, you make it easier for them to suppress our free speech. You know, for me, for me, the it's hard to determine sometimes, but the real criteria, there are two real criteria. One is, what's the discernible intent? In other words, is this a mean-spirited comment or a callous comment, something where people are clearly not, don't care or are demonstrating lack of interest in the, the well-being or the rights of certain people versus somebody who's ignorant, versus somebody who says something without even realizing how offensive it is. And then the second is, is this something that this person has demonstrated over time, or is it something that's kind of an individual circumstance? So Deming, I, you know, I get a chance to, to study with Edwards Deming when he was in his 90s, great quality guru, and he used to create the distinction between special case and common case circumstances. And he used to say, for example, that you know you have a special case circumstance is one where if something happens, it's an anomaly to the system. So, you know, let's take the Starbucks example. You know, the incident that happened at Starbucks, it's you know, a terrible incident that happened at the Philadelphia store, but it does not appear that it's that the Starbucks system is designed to produce that result. And no system of quarter of a million people can be completely immune from individual people making a mistake. It's just not realistic. Versus a, a common case circumstance is when a system is regularly producing or is designed to produce a particular behavior. So if you look at Megyn Kelly, for example, I would say, 
you know, here you have somebody who's made these gaffes numerous times in the past. You know, she did the thing with the black Santa Claus and there was the black Jesus. And then there's this and there are four or five other examples. You know, you put her on TV in the morning. It's it's, it's it was only a matter of time before she do another one because she demonstrated so many times in the past that she'd done this. So so for me, the shame is not on her as much as it's on them. What did they expect? You know, they took a big name person because they thought it would draw it would draw attention, and and you get what you get with her. As opposed to, for example, if you remember the thing that happened with oh my goodness, what's his name, Juan Williams, when he was on NPR and he made the comment, he made the comment. You know, I have to acknowledge that when I'm on an airplane, and mind you, this was in 2003, maybe, or something like that, or 2002. Yeah, it was right after 9-11. He said, I have to acknowledge that when I see somebody get on the plane and they're wearing Muslim clothing, it, I get a little frightened. You know, and, and now he said, I know I shouldn't. too. I know I shouldn't. Exactly. Now, now to, for me, that seemed like a ridiculous thing to fire him for. It felt it felt to me like that could have been much more used as an opportunity to open up dialogue because he was speaking something the half of America was feeling at that time, right or wrong. And to fire somebody that that's where I think we get into the excessive political correctness and and, you know, watching people's speech, becoming the speech police and that I, can really shut down dialogue in our society. Yeah, I was really good with NPR after that. Tracy, how about you? I couldn't agree more. There is a line. So when I work with organizations and they say, we're going to have, there is a line. So when I work with organizations and they say, we're going to have, or we have, or we intend to have a zero tolerance policy. I always say, oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay. So what does that mean to you? And then I try to give them some examples to let them know that the intent they want, which is to really clearly make employees or members of the organization understand that the values of the organization are for respect and for, you know, creating a safe environment and all of that. And zero tolerance as a phrase isn't appropriate because then you take away your opportunity to discern what is the appropriate action here? Either that, or you follow your zero tolerance policy, and then you end up having to terminate people for things that would be best handled a different way. So, but I, I don't think some of that is just a distinction between terminating them, removing them, or educating I think there's different levels of educating. So do you educate that individual or there are times when you need to educate the entire workforce or the entire group. But I also see a lot of the times when people are terminated, I find myself saying, oh, I wish they hadn't fired that person because now there's no way to hold them accountable for changing their behavior. Because especially with celebrities or high-level executives in corporations, because of their experience and or their celebrity, somebody else is going to scoop them up and pay them a lot of money. And if they had stayed where they made the mistake or caused the problem, that organization could hold them accountable for shifting their beliefs, changing, or at least changing their behaviors, even if their beliefs don't change, and force them to behave differently and understand why that's not acceptable, whatever it is they did or said. And so for me, the big question always becomes about 
the accountability for improved behavior down the line. I think that's really valuable. I think it's a really valuable distinction. I think that, you know, the question is, are we complaining about a problem or are we moving to solutions? And I think with Tracy's, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more, Tracy. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It becomes kind of like a game of whack-a-mole, you know, yes. fire yes. somebody, then somebody else comes up. And I think that sometimes some of these people and a lot of them tend to be white, but not always really that maybe makes them feel good. Okay. Yeah. We got rid of that person, but how is that helping the situation? How is that? create how is that creating change yeah so if i could yeah i think if i could just add one thing about this i think i think that that this is really important not only thinking about it from an organizational standpoint but even a societal standpoint you know is that we're so complaint oriented and and so not solution oriented in the way we approach some of these things and that contributes to the problem so i want to ask i guess tracy went to get something so howard Mm -hmm. ask you this as, as a white person, as a Jewish person, as, as a man, what have you been your challenges in terms of having conversations about race? Because, well, all three of us are perfect now, but we weren't always perfect, okay? <laughs> well, you know, I, don't, I never claim that. I'm, I'm really clear. What it, I think one of the, one of the things that I, I, I found is most important is to, is to share my own blind spots with people, you know, and they come up regularly. You know, I, just recently I was, I was out at the Forum for Workplace Inclusion last spring uh, in uh, Minneapolis and with my wife, Leslie, and I was also my business partner and, and one of our colleagues, Cook Ross. And uh, we were coming back. We flew back to DCA to Washington National Airport. And we kind of come up the aisle to the main hallway and walk out in the main hallway. And they're standing right in front of me, 20 feet in front of me, is Martin Luther King III, Dr. King's son. And I had sort of a fanboy moment, I have to admit. And so I went over to him and, and, you know, he couldn't have been more gracious. And I thanked him, as I'm sure millions have, for his, the role that his father played in my life and for the great work that he's done in carrying the torch. And, and uh, he, he, you know, agreed to take a picture with us. He, he was with his wife and another younger woman. And we took a picture and we went home. And the next day, somebody was over our house. I said, yeah, we met, you know, Martin Luther King III and his wife and his assistant. And, and Leslie says to me, she wasn't his assistant. She was his chief of staff. And, and I had to stop and say to myself, if that was a man, would I have assumed that it was his assistant or might I have thought maybe it was his lawyer or something else? No, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I suspect it probably the gender in that case did impact me. And I could find other examples where I made assumptions about race or that were influenced by race. I'm sure each of you can as well. I think that we have to acknowledge that and be willing to. And I think when we do that, it makes it much easier for us to have conversations with other people because we're acknowledging our own blind spots. I mean, I've never had an issue as a white man doing the work because from the beginning of my life, you know, coming from a family of Holocaust victims, it was very clear to me that creating a sense of healthy diversity in the world and creating safety for people who are different is very real. It's not some imagined phenomenon in my life. It's something that killed my my ancestors. And so for me, the notion that this is only for you know, people of color is an absurd notion because we all have to live in this world together. We have to create a world of inclusion for everybody. And now it's even exacerbated by the fact that I've got that four of my six grandchildren are of mixed race. So, so I don't have any issue with that. Some people do, you know, some people wonder why a white guy would be doing this. And, and even in the inclusion community, sometimes I don't feel a full sense of belonging because there's some people who, you know, who still kind of relate to me as the white guy. And, you know, I've dealt with people who were jealous of the fact that I was successful and how come the white guy is, you know, all this kind of stuff. But, you know, frankly, 
that's not what I determine my behavior on. I determine my behavior on what my heart tells me I need to be working on and what my mission is in the world. And people will react the way they react. Well, Howard, thank you so much for sharing that. See, I had no idea that you ever felt like you didn't belong. So thank you. Tracy, how about you? I was asking about what's been, what have been your challenges uh, and having these conversations as a black woman? Well, I started having these conversations at the age of four. (laughs) So at least at at a level that I could remember. And so facilitating your preschool, were you Tracy? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. The advantage of being a part of a black family that had been, that was in a previously predominantly white or previously all white neighborhood. So even with that, yeah, there are still lots of times along the the way that I've put my foot in my mouth or I've been uncomfortable. Or I realized afterwards I wasn't as sensitive to how I might be coming across. But what jumps to mind in this moment is that one of the most powerful insights and ahas that I had around my own ignorance was that, I don't know, this is, you know, probably almost 40 years ago, but when I really got it, that white people didn't think about race all the time, the way that black people did and had to in order to survive. And that literally many of the things that were done or words that were spoken that were offensive or insensitive or inappropriate, that that really white people had no clue that they were being insensitive or inappropriate. And it blew my mind. I mean, literally, it took me about a year to fully grasp what that meant. And it shifted me to be able to be more of an educator than an enforcer. But even though that was 30 plus years ago when I really finally got it, it still surprises me. And even this year, I've had example after example that reminds me of this. Let me give you the example and then I'll tell you how I'm reminded that I could say the wrong thing easily. So I wore my hair in locks for 12 years and my locks were long and I was used to people being curious about that. And people for the most part have been appropriately curious and have questions and that's great. Six months ago, I cut my locks off. And so I'm wearing my hair very, very, very short, close to my head, very little hair. And I even saying this out loud, I can feel like I am shocked at how many white people come up to me and put their hands in my head, on my head, affectionately. Oh, your hair, you know, I'm like, and every time it makes me cringe. Even people who I, I know that they are on their journey. I know that there are many of them who are advocates about race or sexual orientation or interfaith. And that they would not know how offensive it would be to touch my hair, my head, as, you know, and not ask question, just go to touch. And so there have been a couple of times when I have blurted out, oh, no, you didn't touch my hair. <laughs> 
with a little bit of attitude and then seeing their reaction going, oh, they don't know that that really is inappropriate. Or I've had to just close my eyes and take a deep breath and count to 10 so I could come back and say, you may not be aware that we've got a good relationship and I know your intention is good, but putting your hands in on the head or in the hair of a black woman is really something you don't want to do ever again to anyone. Yeah. So the conversations come up at the most unexpected time. And that's what I'm reminded of that. I won't always respond the way that I'd love to respond as an expert on diversity and inclusion when it's me personally, or when it's an issue or concern that I have a heart connection to. Yeah, you know, and I think, you know, for me, you know, I think that, like I asked you both, what, what was your challenges? For me, sometimes it's, I would rather talk to somebody who really doesn't know than somebody who thinks that they know. Because if I'm talking to a white person that really doesn't know, I'm going to have a conversation. I'm going to find some connection. They're not going to tell me how, oh, I went out with a black guy, so therefore I'm not racist or whatever, you know, whatever people. And it's easier for me. But the other thing, too, as, as a white person who's also Jewish, there's another challenge because there's also, and, and I tell people, and they go, well, you know, I'm Jewish and I understand depression. I said, no, you understand your oppression, but maybe you don't over understand or you understand your discrimination. And at the same time, I said, let's put it this way. Who could get a cab at night in New York? You know, you or a black person. So, right. you know, I have to point out, so, so sometimes that's a challenge, but you have to acknowledge, I think it's really important to acknowledge other people's issues around discrimination and what they've been through. And at the same time, for me, say, okay, and then look at this also. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, look, I, I think, you know, Tracy's point and the point that you're making about people not being able to understand the lived experience of others is, is I think, at the core of this. You know, Tracy, when you were talking about, you know, people just not getting what it's like, I, you know, I've had conversations a number of times recently with people about entitlement and white privilege. And, you know, when people hear those terms, they hear, hear about white entitlement or white privilege, or in some cases, white male privilege. You know, they think what it means, you're a bad person because you have privilege. They don't get the systemic aspect of it. But from a systemic standpoint, I'll often have the conversation. I'll say to people, you know, I've got four sons, the youngest of whom is 24 years old. They all got their driver's licenses. And I never once had to have a single moment of thought to have a conversation with them about driving while white and what to do if a police officer stopped you and how race might play a role in how you're treated by that police officer. And yet virtually every African-American friend I have who has children of that age have had that conversation. And it's such a prevalent conversation in the black community that the NAACP actually produces a booklet, How to Talk to Your Kids About Driving While Black. That's privilege. The fact that I didn't have that conversation is privilege. And the fact that I don't realize that black Parents have to have that conversation and that every time their child goes out at night, they worry about things like that, where I still worry about, you know, especially when they were just starting to drive, worry about them getting into accidents or something like that. 
but I never had to worry about them getting killed by a police officer because they were white or Jewish in, my, in our particular case. And so I, I do think that it's those deeper levels of conversation and, and being able to understand the lived experience of each other that are so important here. But I also don't want us to leave the impression in this conversation that that's singularly something that white people have to pay attention to. Because I think when you bring up, Sima, the different attitude that folks might have around anti-Semitism or that or that Latinos have about race versus the way African-Americans feel about race or that Asians have about race rather than the way Latinos and African-Americans and white people feel about race. We all need to do a better job of understanding each other. This past weekend after the synagogue shooting, I had a number of conversations with people about the subtle the subtle way that that anti-Semitism contributes to being an outsider in the society, even while Jews are financially more successful, have lots of opportunities in the academy and all these kinds of things, that there still is on a very subtle level, but nonetheless very real, this sense of, you know, who am I dealing with that gets exacerbated when things happen like what happened this weekend. Yeah. And that is you're reminded that that you're still as a white person in this society, as a white Jewish person in this society, have one foot on the station and one foot on the train. Yeah, and if you're a and, there's, and you know, and if you're a black Jewish person, then you That's have a whole other dynamic. Lot of issues because there's a lot of you know there's a lot of Jews of color that have to deal with a lot of those issues on so many different yeah. levels. Tracy, yeah. yeah, and the thing that I was going to add, and it's funny how our energy is kind of in the same place. I was thinking about. The one thing that hasn't come up in our responses, and it is a challenge for me on, around this, on my, I, I moderate a Facebook group called What is Mine to Do? And it's what is mine to do to eliminate or reduce race-based hatred and violence. And I am constantly challenging myself to look beyond black and white. And to bring in the experience of every racial and ethnic group in our world. And how do we need to, what can we learn? What can I learn that will help me understand better the experience that someone who is a person of color, but they're not black? They're, you know, from a different group because I don't, there's a lot I don't know. And so how do I model for everyone who participates in the page, really looking out for information and education and being responsive when different things happen in our world that could have an impact or have, have a negative impact, especially, and sharing the history, the very powerful and rich history of other racial and ethnic groups that often get overlooked because we talk about race and we, you know, gravitate to the black-white continuum. Well, and two questions. One is, why is that? And what, and I'm going to assume that both of you have a lot of people in your life from a lot of different cultures, not just black and not white, right? Right. And so... What kind of, so do you also have these kind of conversations with those people too? Well, yes. And the why is that is easy. The why is that is because the black white conflict, the black white continuum, the black white, you know, quote unquote issue has been the most prevalent and in some ways historically in the United States, at least, has laid a foundation 
economic, psychological, social has laid such a foundation about how we treat race and what we believe about race. And so, and it's also the conversation that is, has been historically most often avoided. So that's the why. I mean, that's what we gravitate toward. But we live in a society, I live in a state that is majority people of color. And there are other states like that. And so, you know, Black folks are not the only people of color. And many, many, many more quote unquote white people are recognizing that they're not pure white. <laughs> they live a, light, a life under the, the social structure of being quote unquote white, but with all of the rush for people to get their, ans their DNA to find their ancestry over the last few years, people are more and more surprised at how mixed they are and that, that they have Afri 